following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So how many of you have ever asked God for a sign? Lord, give me a sign. You ever said something like that? Lots of hands up in the room. Um, When I was uh, 17 years old, I guess it would have been, I was getting ready to go to college and I was not sure yet what I wanted to pursue in my college life in my, and in my life. Um, by the way, isn't it, uh, doesn't it seem like poor judgment to ask 17-year-olds to make six-figure decisions about the rest of their life? <laughs> Let's call that a sermon for another day. Uh, but I couldn't decide. I was a musician. I wanted to be like in music, but I was kind of feeling like maybe I was called to ministry, except I didn't really have one of those moments where it's like, you should be a pastor. Um, <laughs> Maybe because anybody with an earshot would have gone, no, he shouldn't. But, <laughs> uh, at any rate, I hadn't heard the, the audible voice of God, and I was trying to decide, and I was like, Lord, give me a sign. And then this thing came in the mail. Now, I grew up in Maine, 500 miles from here, and uh, it was a flyer from uh, Roberts Wesleyan College. And at Roberts Wesleyan College, they have a degree program called Contemporary Ministries in which you are required to select an area of concentration, youth ministry, social work, whatever it might be. One of them was music. And so this was God endorsing my procrastination. (laughs) That's how I like to see it. You might have a different interpretation. But to me, this was a way where I could go uh, off... Uh, 500 miles seemed like the right distance to be away from my family of origin at that time. You know, because I was 17, there was nothing like bad going on, except that, you know, we were all tired of each other. Um, <clears throat> and I could do essentially a music minor for a couple of years while I figure out the ministry calling, right? And so that was the sign that I got from God. Sometimes you ask for a sign because you have a tough decision to make, right? Uh, some of you who raised your hand, no doubt, are thinking of a time when you had to make a decision. Lord, give me a sign. Sometimes... You've already made the decision, and you're living it, and you kind of want some confirmation. Lord, give me a sign that I'm in the right place, that I'm doing the right thing, that I have the right job, that I'm in the right relationship, uh, whatever it might be. Sometimes, Sometimes we want a sign from God that proves God exists at all. Sometimes our faith is feeling kind of shaky, and we're, we're barely holding on, and we think, God... If you're there, it sure would be nice to know. It doesn't have to be a Lamborghini, but that would be okay. (laughs) Just any sign that you are real would be wonderful. Have you ever asked God for a sign that God even exists at all? I wonder, um, I know we have lots of skeptics in the room. I'm delighted by that fact, actually, by the way. Um, And I wonder for those skeptics among us, what would it take for you? How big a sign would you need? To believe? What would it require? What, what would you have to see happen or experience in order to become a believer? Something that had total clarity left. It was unambiguous. God is real. Those of us who have been skeptics or are skeptics, we, we sometimes have that like written down on a little piece of paper in our mind. Well, I don't believe, but if? Maybe. So what I want to do this morning is uh, share with you two Bible passages, two Bible stories that are assigned to us by the lectionary uh, for this Sunday. And one of them is from the Old Testament, the original sacred text of the Jewish faith. 
And the second one is from the New Testament, the Christian scriptures. And now our Christian Bibles contain both sections of it, which makes sense since Christianity was, after all, born out of a a movement of faithful Judaism. We're going to start with the Old Testament, the Jewish story. It's in the book of Exodus. And if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to find it in one of our Bibles, the red Bibles with the hard covers, it's on page 55 there. And uh, you can find one nearby and look it up. And this story that I want to read to you and talk to you about a little bit takes place right after a huge miracle, right after a sign, you might say. The book of Exodus, if you don't know, tells the story of the people of God coming out of slavery in Egypt, which Yahweh, the the one true God of Israel, uh, accomplishes through a series of ten miraculous plagues that are visited upon the Egyptian people and bring them pain and suffering to these cruel slave masters and the Pharaoh, the king, so that they finally relent and let God's people go. And the people of God get out of Egypt, and God parts the waters of the Red Sea so that they can pass through. And after they pass through, the Egyptians are chasing them through, and the waters collapse in on them, and the horse and the rider thrown into the sea, whoopee, is the little children's song that's made out of that rather morbid moment. At any rate, we've experienced another miracle. All the miracles in Egypt, the miracle of crossing the Red Sea, and the people are on the other side and they're free. And they're about three days into their journey from Egypt toward the promised land, the land that God promised uh, they would enter in and live in, the land flowing with milk and honey, and they run out of water and they start complaining. And God tells Moses, the leader of the people, Take a piece of wood and throw it into that brackish pool that the people can't drink from. And Moses does it and suddenly the pool is sweet and the people can drink and everything's happy and they go on their way and they never complain again. (laughs) Not exactly. Not exactly. They've had uh, the ten miracles, the plagues in in Egypt, the miracle of crossing the sea, the miracle of the the water becoming, uh, is it potable or potable? I never quite know. I want to say potable, but then like smart people say potable and I'm like, I'm not sure. I could just look it up, but that's uh, too much work. So they've had another miracle, and then they move on, and then they get hungry. And that's where our text picks up. We're going to look at Exodus 16. Uh, We're going to look at verses 2 through 4, and then it skips ahead to verse 9. Did I do it again? I always walk up here without my Bible. (laughs) Thank you. Good thing I wrote the page number down. So if you are looking at this in the Red Bibles, and maybe if you have your own Bible, you might see a heading on this section. In the Red Bibles, it says, Bread from Heaven. Now, that's not part of the original Hebrew text. That's an editorial thing, but that's the story, Bread from Heaven. And there will be three phrases in this story that I will pause and draw your attention to, okay? Let's look at Exodus 16, starting in verse 2. The whole congregation of the Israelites. Okay, there's the first phrase. (laughs) The whole congregation. You're going to hear the whole congregation or the whole assembly appear in this text a few different times. And, and for me, it's a good reminder that in the journey of redemption, we are doing this thing together. The journey of redemption is a communal effort, and, and we rise and we fall in faith and in love together. Okay, let's try again. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained... Uh, uh, sorry... Sorry to stop again so soon, but this is actually the second one, complained. We're going to see complained a few times in this text as well. Not surprising to anybody who's ever read any of these stories that complaining comes up again. But here's what I want you to think of and notice in the text. When, we, when, I, when I read the word complained, I want you to see what's happening right there um, regarding the people's relationship to God. Okay. 
the whole, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. Now, flesh pots, that sounds very morbid, but it just means like fondue. Okay? It's like pots of meat. <laughs> For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. And then verses 5 through 8 go into details about those instructions. We're going to skip that and go to verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw, say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And this is the third phrase that I want to, uh, to focus in on here. You shall know. What is asking for a sign about if it's not about knowing? God says to tell them, you'll eat your fill and then you will know that I'm God. There'll be a miracle that fills your belly and then you won't have any more doubts. (laughs) By this time tomorrow, God seems to be saying, you're going to have this all figured out. Wouldn't that be nice? If God said to you, just hang on, by breakfast time, you're going to have it all figured out. You shall know that I'm the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as the frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And that's the end of our passage. Did you notice that God said, You'll eat your fill, and then you'll know. And then the bread comes down as promised, and the people are like, What's that? And it literally says, they did not know. They did not know what it was. These people are not very bright, are they? I mean, it'd be one thing if they were just like in the wilderness and hungry and they woke up one morning and the ground had all this flaky white stuff on it. But they had just been told the night before there was like a flash in the sky. It was, should have been very obvious to the people God said, you will know when your belly's full. And the people couldn't even get to putting it in their mouths because they didn't know what it was. They didn't know. By the way, the Hebrew word manna, which is what this bread from heaven is called later in Scripture, the word manna just means, what is it? (laughs) This manna, this bread from heaven, this great miracle of God's provision, it's, it's, it's literally named Huh? <laughs> miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet the people don't believe. 
It's almost as if the point of miracles isn't to prove that God exists. The point of miracles is to show who God is. The point of the miracle is not to prove God's existence. The point of the miracle is to to point us to what kind of God we have. And what kind of God do these miracles, just from this little snippet of the history of the Israelites, show us God to be? Yahweh, the the Israelites' God, is a God of justice. God will not tolerate people being enslaved. God's going to break those chains and let the people free. God's a God of provision. God does not want children running hungry and thirsty. God provides for for their needs. God is even kind of tender-hearted and patient. Like It's not necessarily a good idea to play the game of if I were God... (laughs) But if I were, I think I would have given up on the people by now. <laughs> Seriously, you can ask, what is it? I just told you. <laughs> I'm going to go find some frogs or something. <laughs> they don't know how to talk. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to put that story in your head, in your mind. Put it away in your, in your memory banks. Maybe even pretend that you're a good Israelite who has heard this story told hundreds of times because every good Israelite would have heard this story told hundreds of times growing up. Uh, Every good Jew today would have heard this story hundreds of times growing up. Hopefully our own children in the Christian tradition have heard this story too. But every single person in the gospel story, the New Testament story, the Jesus time story, every single person in that story that we're about to read would have known the details of the story we just looked at and they would have known them cold. Keep that in mind. This next story, this New Testament story, this, this gospel story, uh, starts in John chapter 6, verse 24. The Red Bibles, it's page 867. If you'd like to grab that and follow along as I read, you can. And this story, this gospel story, sort of like the, New, the Old Testament we just looked at, it takes place right after a huge miracle. Such a big miracle that it has a name with capital letters that even people who didn't grow up in church probably have heard. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Most of you have heard that story, whether you're a churchy person or not. The story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is teaching and he's gathered an enormous crowd. Thousands of people had shown up and Jesus uh, runs a little long and it's getting past lunchtime, uh, which he should know. You never do that. Um, but there's no food. Except that there's a little boy with five loaves of bread and some fish. And Jesus tells the disciples, okay, sit everybody down. Take the baskets of food from the boy. Pass them through. Tell everybody to take as much as they want. And what happens is not only does everybody have enough to eat, but there's so much left over that when they gather it up, it fills 12 more baskets. 12 baskets. By the way, there's five books of Torah in the Old Testament and 12 tribes of Israel. So chew on that on your way home for a few minutes. So this story that I want to read takes place shortly after that. Jesus has gone off by himself up a mountain as it happens. Not that that is an obvious reference to Moses on Mount Sinai or anything. And then he goes across the sea, which he does by walking on water. Not that there's ever been a miracle related to crossing a sea before. And then ultimately, the people, the crowd of people track him down the way crowds of people will track down a celebrity, which Jesus is fast becoming at this time. And if you look in the Red Bibles at John 6, 24, 
you'll notice that our editors have given this a section heading. And what's the section heading? The bread from heaven. Now, I'm going to go through the story and kind of interject a little bit as we do. And if you wanted to, you could try to count the number of ways that this crowd of people misses the point of what Jesus is doing and saying. But I wouldn't actually recommend it because you'll probably lose count as we go through. Let's just dive in. John 6, 24. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Uh, it's kind of like, we noticed you left and forgot to tell us where you were going. <laughs> Jesus answered them, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus is saying, I see what happens here. I fed you a late lunch yesterday, and it's an hour past breakfast, and you're hungry again. And you're chasing me down because you think I exist on this earth to provide food for everybody miraculously. You're not looking for me because you saw a sign. You're looking for me because you filled your belly and you want to do it again. Verse 27, he goes on to say, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Now, I admit, John 6, 27 is a little bit of a confusing thing. It's a little bit of a confusing verse. It's kind of difficult to understand what exactly Jesus is saying there. But the people don't even get three words in, and, they're, and it's like, now, uh, do not work for the wah, 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 wah. They heard the word work, and they're like, what must we do to perform the works of God? So Jesus, I like to imagine Jesus at this point, closing his eyes and taking a deep cleansing breath. And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. In other words, don't worry about doing God's work. It's hard enough simply to believe in the one that God has sent. If you want to work on something, work on believing. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? What sign? What sign? You were all there yesterday. Do you remember the fish and the bread? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. <laughs> That's not how Jesus talks. <laughs> but then they clarify and they say, Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And this, I think, might be the most telling verse in the passage because it, it, it shows us what the people are really after. Yes, they're after food for their bellies, and yes, they're after the kind of ecstatic experience of seeing a miracle performed. Mostly what they want is predictability and repeatability. They want manna 
which appears every single day, except the Sabbath, that was part of the gathering instructions, but every single day, the exact same way, at the exact same time, you could set your watch to the miracle of manna. And they want that experience. They want an obvious, repeatable, undeniable miracle to prove that Jesus is saying who that Jesus is who he's saying he is. Don't we all want that? Let's not be too hard on them just yet. Don't we all want that? Maybe you've had an experience with God sometime in the past and you thought, man, how did I ever doubt? And then the memory fades a little bit and pretty soon you're asking God for another sign. Just, just a sign, Lord, that's all I need to believe. You remember the thing before? I really liked that. Could I have that again, please? Preferably in the same way so that I really know it's you. Verse 32, Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, he's, he's hoping that they'll finally understand that he's talking about himself. Do you think they do? Let's check and see. <laughs> so they say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. See, they, they're pretty sure they think he means manna. <laughs> they're like, yes, more manna. That's exactly what we mean. Give us that bread always. That word always tips us off a little bit. They don't want these one-off miracles. They want the, they want the one that hits at 7.30 a.m. Repeatable. Boy, these people are not very bright either, are they? They're just like those dumb Israelites. Lucky for us, we're so smart. <laughs> you know, it turns out that none of us are as bright as we think we are, and none of us are as... Um, successful in continually connecting to God as we might wish we were. We look at miracles as, as proof instead of trying to learn from them about who God is. Remember, miracles aren't there to prove God's existence but to show us God's nature. And we just never get that. We want to eat our fill. We crave not only food, we also crave proof. We crave Reliable, repeatable, undeniable, easily consumable proof. And the story concludes. Jesus finally just comes out and says it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Here's what I want to leave you with today. Stop craving proof and start craving Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. I know that's really hard. And depending on where you are, if we were to draw a spiritual spectrum, I like to think of the spiritual life as more three-dimensional than that, but let's just say it's a line and people with no faith are on one side and people with lots of faith are on the other side and 
Maybe there's another line for time and you've been a Christian or a believer for a long time or a short time. Depending on where you are on those axes, you might hear me say, crave Jesus and say, like, please don't let that be the end of the sermon because I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but the problem is I can't give you one thing that will work for everybody. For some of you, I think, uh, I'll try to give, it, give a few versions. <laughs> for some of you, I think you've, who've been, who are really evidence-based people, by the way, we need you in our lives. I am not denigrating the scientific method or any of those things. We're so glad that there are people who think about the world that way. Um, but, but faith doesn't always fit into that, that keyhole. Um, if you're a person who, who's looking for evidence, uh, maybe start looking for the, the, the life and teachings of Jesus instead. Rather than trying to find some way to prove that the resurrection was actually true, look at the teachings of Jesus and try to follow them um, just as if he were just a teacher. I know that's a thing that people don't like to say, Jesus was just a great teacher. But um, if you start there, that leads somewhere. That can be, uh, that can be something for you. Maybe uh, for those of you who are on the other end of one of those spectra where like, you've been a believer a long time and you're like, crave Jesus, are you serious? Like, I'm 65 years old, I've been a Christian since I was four it's just not the way it works anymore. Maybe for you this looks more like changing a spiritual practice in a way that actually that gets you excited about it. Maybe the way you have prayed for your entire life, just if you switch that a little bit, find a spiritual director or talk to somebody in a, in a small group or something like that and think about new ways to pray, you might find that you actually want to do it again. That's kind of like what I mean by craving Jesus. The same thing goes for Bible study. If you have read the same devotional through 14 times, it's a one-year devotional and you've been doing it since you were you know, 12 and you're 26 now or whatever, like try something different. Instead of trying to crave proof, instead of clamoring for uh, a repeat of an experience that you once had, maybe recognize that, that that's not there anymore and that there's something new that God has for you and the only way you get that is by seeking Jesus more deeply. So stop craving proof. Stop craving miracles. Try to find out who God is. And you've heard me say this before. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. Jesus is the exact replica of God's very nature. Hebrews 1. So let me pray for you and for me and for all of us because this is a, this journey of redemption uh, using the Exodus as a model. It goes all kinds of places and, and sometimes we have no idea where we are and we need God's presence with us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for these stories from your inspired scriptures. And we pray that you would help us to internalize them in a, in a meaningful way today, wherever we are on whatever spectrum we're thinking of right now. Help us to, uh, to let go of the need for proof in every circumstance and instead sit quietly Instead, be still and know that you are God and know what kind of God you are. Help us to seek Jesus and trust that Jesus is who he said he is. Take away our craving for proof and replace it with a craving for the Son of God. It's in his name that we pray as we place our trust. Amen.
Well, Jesus gave us a meal. When you have occasion to forget, this is how you remember. The sacrifice of Jesus laid out on the table of the Lord. Week after week, we take this meal. And uh, I know that sometimes it seems like repetition and it's just rote and it might not mean as much for you one week as it did some time ago. It's not really the point. The point is the sustenance of God. And so I invite all of you who are seeking to follow Jesus in this place today to come and receive the body and blood of the Savior on offer at his table. Take a piece of the bread, remember his body, which is broken for you, and you can dip that in one of the cups, remembering his blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of our many sins. You can eat it right here at the table and um, return to your seat. If you prefer not to take communion today, we are still glad you're here. You're welcome to sit and observe or just think or pray. There's a member of the prayer team at the back of the room who'd be happy to pray with anybody in person should you need that. And we'll continue to worship God in song so you can sing or listen to the song as well. Our table is open at the invitation not of me but of the Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.